Whispers in the Trees is a dark podcast currently focusing on the Great White North, surrounding all of our grisly truths from the kindest place on earth to the head-scratching unknowns hidden beneath our snow. My name is Mads, so join me today on a deep dive into our very own Madison Hat Werewolf. I'm sorry this upload is late today, guys. I had a bit of a rough week this week, just wasn't feeling super well, just a cold, and just not feeling super great, so the recording wasn't coming out as well as I wanted. So we're trying again now, and hopefully I'll be able to get this done by the end of today instead of this morning. If you guys want to support me in my passion of bringing these dark secrets to light, please consider supporting me at buymeacoffee.com forward slash whispers podcast. No pressure. You guys are awesome just for listening and supporting that way. Today's case will be including manipulation and abuse of minors, violence, drug and alcohol mentions, as well as murder and the murder of a minor. Your discretion is advised. So those of you that remain, sit around my campfire, have a seat. These are my whispers in the trees. Jeremy Steinke was born on January 15, 1983, and grew up with his mom in a trailer park in Medicine Hat, Alberta. He was given medication for depression and ADHD from a young age, as well as smoking marijuana daily to try and cope with his inner demons. At this time, marijuana was not legal in Canada, so he was getting it off the street and coping with his demons with illegal substances. He had been known to cut his arms as a form of self-harm, and he had attempted suicide in his youth. His behavior was escalating from just self-medicating with drugs as well as prescribed medications to self-harming and attempting suicide. He was not getting the help that he needed. Clearly there was some attempt to help his mental health in his youth because he had prescribed medications, but it just wasn't enough for him. He needed more. His mother was alcoholic and she herself had prescribed medications for her own mental illnesses that she was fighting. As she raised Jeremy, she had three different husbands through his life, and each of them were abusive to the young boy. I'm sure we can see how this is going to go. Just don't fucking abuse your kids, man. It's not that hard. I get it. Kids are little shits, but come on. Just come on. His mother would testify one had beaten him with a paint stick, one with a belt, and would drag him to bed by his ears when he misbehaved, and one had pushed his head into a deep freeze. If this is what was being testified about, I can't imagine what else was happening behind closed doors that she wouldn't talk about in front of people because it was worse. This is ridiculous. Like, I get it. Kids are assholes. I'm not a mom. I was a babysitter and I have younger sibling. But oh my god, like, we talk about it a lot on this channel. There's been a lot of child abuse cases on this channel where a cycle of abuse and trauma just continues and the abused becomes the abuser you guys are plenty smart i'm sure you guys do not need my preaching to know that but it just it sucks to see how common it is the kid was known to get along better with people younger than him kids his own age were just bullying him because of his rough upbringing so he was gravitating towards kids that wouldn't verbally abuse him or beat the shit out of him like at his school he had the nickname jeremy stinky instead of jeremy steinke which was his actual last name So kids were just treating him like shit and he gravitated towards kids that weren't and that was the younger crowd. The younger crowd thought he was so cool because he was older than them. I'm sure you guys went through the same thing in high school. If any of the older grades 
paid attention to the younger grades, they fawned over it because, oh my god, the older kids are paying attention to us. Like, that's kind of the way the hierarchy in school works. So Jeremy was just kind of relishing in this. He was finding his escape however he could from the violence he had at home and at school. He was just finding whatever outlet that he possibly could have. And unfortunately, that was younger kids. It was in 2006 that Jeremy would meet his self-proclaimed soulmate, Jasmine Richardson. Jasmine was born in 1994 and was at a punk rock concert when she met her soon-to-be boyfriend. If you've done the math with me, you realize she was 12 when she attended that punk rock concert and locked eyes with Jeremy. She was 12. He was 23. He was dressed in all black and wore dark eye makeup like most of the people at the show as he approached the young girl. But what was unlike the others at the show was the necklace around his neck that he would later tell Jasmine was filled with a vial of blood that he loved to drink. He loved the taste of the iron-rich plasma. And apparently at one point, a friend of his baked him a batch of sugar cookies that would be tinted pink because they had so much blood in them. Delicious. Mm. The two sparked conversation and he would swoon her with tale of how he was a 300-year-old reincarnated werewolf and he showed off his gothic style to the young child. The formerly outgoing, social, and happy girl would be smitten with this new way of life and this new way of being and the couple would continue to chat online with each other. They would use websites like Nexopia and VampireFreaks.com to communicate in private as Jeremy really couldn't see Jasmine in person. Yeah, Jasmine's parents weren't exactly in love with their daughter's choice in boyfriend, especially as they watched the girl who had formerly been into all the average girly things fall into a darker side of life. Their 12-year-old daughter was falling in love with a man 11 years older than her, and no matter what they did, there was nothing they could do to stop it. Jasmine would wear dark makeup so she would look older and mark her profile saying she was 15. It described her as a dark nocturnal Wiccan that liked dark poetry, kinky shit, criminal psychology, blood, human anatomy, and Jeffrey Dahmer. She claimed she was bisexual, a deep thinker, and awkward as well as insane. Honestly, this profile just kind of sounds like your regular angsty teen looking for attention and looking to find themselves. She was looking through different interests her family likely wasn't really letting her have before this, and this part of things is pretty average for a 12-year-old kid. I remember doing that kind of fucky shit as a kid, and I'm sure a bunch of you guys will remember doing that kind of shit if you're on a true crime podcast. Come on. Come on. You guys know I'm calling you out lovingly. Lovingly calling you out. The problem is when you have a pretty normal kid going into the angsty side of things and exploring this kind of shit and doing the more rebellious side, finding someone willing to manipulate and groom them. And in this case, Jasmine met Jeremy. Like I said, her parents did absolutely everything they could to stop this relationship from happening. They did not approve of it. Her parents forbade her from seeing Jeremy, and even her goth friends at school disapproved of the relationship, but Jasmine really didn't care. She thought she had found her soulmate, the love of her life, and this was her rebellion, and she was going to hold it close. She wasn't going to let anyone get in the way of this. Obviously, I can't speak for her. I've never spoken to this girl, but that's what I'm assuming anyway. Her parents would end up taking away her computer in an attempt to block the contact, but when they did this, Jasmine would just sneak out at night to see him. So, again, this is pretty average teenage behavior. All teenagers sneak out and disobey their parents and rebel against them, but 
this is a very extreme situation and the rest of this is not going to be normal. This, this really sucks how this ends up. That's putting it very lightly. Jasmine was not gonna let anyone or anything get in the way of her new soulmate. The man who listed his interests as scarification, pain, kinky fetishes, blood, and razor blades. He finished it with a bio that read a gothic individual who believes in blood, destruction, guts, gore, and greed. Am I God's champion or Satan's angel? An interesting companion to Jasmine's that ended with welcome to my tragic end. The couple shared some pretty intense messages online. One found by authorities would read from Jeremy to Jasmine, quote, you're a sight for sore eyes and I miss you more than I miss killing people. Can we get together and kill people together? This message would be found by Jasmine's parents would, would be the one that actually prompted them taking away her computer and actually sending the girl to counseling. She seemed to be calming down with the counseling, so they gave the computer back and said that they were trusting her to stay away from older men. But she wasn't gonna do that, come on. She wasn't gonna do that. No, no, no. Jasmine and Jeremy had found each other and that was all that mattered in their minds. And there was only one thing standing in the way of their happiness, Jasmine's family. The couple desperately wanted to be together, so they came up with a plot to do so. Just days before they enacted their destructive decision, Jeremy posted to his blog, my lover's rents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what is going on. They just assume. Their throats? I want a slit. What prompted this post, you ask? She had written him a letter that started with, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Jeremy had been receptive to this letter and texted back that he loved the idea, but they needed details on how to do it and stuff. She'd even told her friends about the plan, but her friends had not believed her since she had a good upbringing and a good family. They didn't think she would ever do something like that, but I guess that shows you never really know a person like you think you do, huh? On April 25th, 2006, Jeremy and Jasmine would watch Natural Born Killers again and discuss their plan. The next day, Jeremy would watch the movie again, and then he would chug a case of beer and vodka to rile himself up before he would enact this plan. So it was April 26, 2006 that Jeremy would break into the basement through the window and Jasmine's mother would hear the commotion and run downstairs to investigate. She saw a man in a ski mask and screamed as she tried to fight back against him. Jeremy said nothing to Deborah Richardson as he stabbed the woman 12 times. This absolute shit show happening in the basement alerted her husband, Mark Richardson, and he ran downstairs to try and figure out what was going on. As soon as he saw her being attacked, he picked up a screwdriver and attempted to fight Jeremy off. He unfortunately failed and Jeremy would stab Mark 24 times. The last thing the man would ask was, why are you doing this? Jeremy would respond that this is what your daughter wanted. I cannot imagine being stabbed to death and then learning that it was because my daughter asked him to do this to me. I cannot imagine watching my wife die and then having me being stabbed and then learning it was because my daughter asked this person to do it. I can't imagine the extra pain that that caused his final moments on this earth. While this was all happening, Jasmine rushed to her younger brother Jacob's room and found him in his bed with his lightsaber across his chest to protect him. She comforted the eight-year-old boy as her boyfriend stabbed their parents to death downstairs. Jasmine comforted the little boy and held her hands over his ears so he wouldn't hear the commotion, saying that he would be okay until Jeremy came into the room covered in blood and ready to finish it all off. 
The 23-year-old looked at his lover and said she had to finish the job. Allegedly, she pleaded to let the 8-year-old live, but Jeremy told her that she had to be involved too, and so far he had done everything. The girl looked at her baby brother and stabbed him in the chest, his last words being, I'm scared. I'm too young to die. Jeremy would finish the job by slitting the boy's throat. Imagine comforting your baby brother, an eight-year-old, before brutally stabbing and killing him with your boyfriend. They claimed they killed the little boy because he was, quote, too sensitive, because they wanted to spare him growing up without parents or seeing his parents the way they were. Give me a fucking break. Fuck you. No. This girl may have been only 12. I understand that she was a child and that she was manipulated and groomed, but she was definitely old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, and killing your family is very, very wrong. These people idolized natural-born killers, saying it was the best love story of all time. This is a movie about a couple killing the girlfriend's parents and then going on a killing spree across America. So they were definitely going to continue to kill at least in their own minds. Like, there's something very wrong here. No. I'm not denying that she was groomed, manipulated, and there's a lot of very complicated things going on. And I'm not a psychologist. I understand that I have no education, but she came up with this plan. She texted him and maybe she was trying to show off and trying to impress him. But she still went along with it, and they were both into it, and they both continued it. Fuck you both for this shitty excuse. No, you did not kill your baby brother because you were trying to spare him. No, 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 honey. You just didn't want him to identify your boyfriend. When the slayings were done, the two snuck out through the back of the house and made their way to Jeremy's trailer. After a couple of hours, they took Jasmine back and dropped her off at the 7-Eleven in Medicine Hat so that she could walk to the trailer and be a little less suspicious. Two hours after they killed Jasmine's family, the couple were spotted at a restaurant eating dinner together. They would also be seen at a party making out and being glued to each other's sides. At this party, witnesses claimed Jeremy had been bragging about gutting Jasmine's father like a fish. Jasmine would have heard this. Jasmine would have been all over it. And she wasn't uncomfortable. She wasn't anything like that. So that shows me something as well. The bodies would be discovered the next day when a little six-year-old boy that was friends with Jacob, Jasmine's brother, would knock on the door for a planned play date with the boy. When there was no answer, he peeked through the basement window and spotted the blood. He ran home and called his parents and his mother would follow him to the house. She would peek through the window and see a body. They would call the police and they would be on the scene very quickly. At first, the authorities did not know that there was a fourth person in the family until they found a family photograph and there was Jasmine in the photo. At first, they thought that she had been killed and dumped somewhere else or kidnapped and was being held for ransom or some other nefarious possible reason. Didn't even pop into their heads to think of her as a suspect. This was her family that had just been killed and she was just gone. There was no way they thought a 12-year-old kid would have just killed their family in Medicine Hat. Medicine Hat had very few crimes. It was a population of 60,000 at this time, and honestly, that's a small population, so crimes are small, and in a place with small amounts of crime, it kind of makes sense that there's not a lot of violent crime. There's not a lot of murder. So they're definitely thinking that there's no way that this is just straight up murder. They're probably thinking it's a robbery gone wrong, or there's some other motive. They're not thinking it's Jasmine. 
until they started looking deeper into her to see if they could figure out who took her that way. The authorities searched her locker, trying to figure out if they could find clues on her kidnapper that way, and what they found was not what they were expecting. It was a comic strip representing her putting gasoline into her family's sprinklers, and then the sprinklers going off and her lighting them on fire while she ran to Jeremy's truck so that her family would burn alive. With this discovery, she was now a suspect. Authorities would check out her computer and checked out her literal everything to figure out what the fuck was going on. In all honesty, they didn't have to wait long before they got a lead. An anonymous tip came through the phone line saying that a friend of Jeremy's had helped the couple leave Medicine Hat, Alberta and go to Leaders, Saskatchewan. The couple had Casey Lancaster, a 20-year-old friend of theirs, and another 17-year-old friend show up to help clean up the truck. The 17-year-old would testify that she had been high on cocaine as well as marijuana, so she hadn't really realized what was happening while she was cleaning up, and that she had seen Jeremy snort some coke, smoke some marijuana, and pop at least one ecstasy pill that night with her boyfriend. Casey would testify she thought she was helping the pair simply run away from Jasmine's parents so that the couple could just be together. The 20-year-old had originally been planning on helping some friends run away, so she let these two just hop on with the group. She actually had no idea that the couple had killed the family until the next day. See, they cleaned up the truck, parked it in a field, slept in it because there was nowhere they could go that they could find to sleep. So they just slept in the truck and then they drove into town and parked in a gas station and she picked up a newspaper and it was all over the front of the news that this family had been killed. Casey would say that she just assumed the bloodstains that she was cleaning up in the truck were from a fight that she assumed that Jeremy had been in because Jeremy had a black eye, so she just thought that he was in a fight and she didn't ask any questions. The truck would be surrounded by officers and the group would be taken into custody. Jasmine's pants were actually down and the officers would not let her get dressed. She'd been worried about Jeremy being charged with rape due to the fact that she was a minor and he was way beyond her age of consent laws. If you guys were here for my one on the Ken and Barbie killers, um, Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo. We talked about the age of consent laws, how in Canada is 16, but if you are 15 or 14, you can be with someone that is five years your senior, as long as there is no relationship of dependency or trust, or there's no way that you can be exploited in that way. Uh, if you're 12 or 13, you can be with someone two years your senior with the same stipulations. Those are the close in age consent laws of Canada total legalities. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. Do not take it as such. I'm watching you. Not not really, but maybe. Mm -hmm. This is literally my understanding from a Google search and the Government of Canada website, so please do not take it as legal advice, but back to the case. And more importantly, away from Casey and the accomplices and back to our star-crossed lovers, if you want to call them that. Jasmine would be sent to a youth detention center and Jeremy would be sent for psych evaluation. I'm pretty sure Jasmine got psych evaluation at the youth detention center, but I couldn't actually find any details on this other than that's where she was sent. The couple would continue to send letters to each other throughout their entire time in custody. They would continue to confess their love to each other and Jeremy would actually propose to Jasmine. She obviously accepted it and would brag to other people around her about her lover. July 7, 2007, Jasmine would be found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to the maximum sentence a juvenile can get for her crimes. 10 years. 
In Canada at this time, an adolescent had to be 14 or over to be tried as an adult. She'd already been in pretrial custody for 18 months and she decided to plead not guilty and tried to convince the jury that she had been only joking when she said all of those things to Jeremy about killing her parents. What hilarious jokes to tell. Can you tell that I'm laughing hysterically right now? She would also claim that she was in a zombie-like state when Jeremy was committing these crimes, so she couldn't stop him because of the state that she was in. Thank the gods that the jury did not buy this. She'd also been telling different tales about who killed Jacob and why they killed Jacob, and it took a few tries for the police to actually get the full true story from her. So like I said, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which means she got credit for the 18 months that she had already served and was put into a youth offenders program rooted in rehabilitation. This means that four years would be spent in a psychiatric facility and the other four and a half years would be in supervised probation in the community. Jeremy would be sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole for 25 years. He had pled not guilty and would actually move his trial from Medicine Hat to Calgary because he was confident that the people of Medicine Hat knew way too much about his crimes and would treat him quote unquote unfairly. He was found guilty of three counts of first degree murder and when asked why he commit these crimes, he said, when you find your soulmate, you do anything for them. I did anything. He changed his name to Jackson May and filed for an appeal in 2012. This was way beyond the 30 day time limit, but he claimed that this was because he didn't understand the law and because he couldn't find a lawyer that was actually willing to help him. All right, buddy, you go ahead and work that angle. You try that out. You see how it works for you. Jasmine would call off the engagement between the pair after a few years, but it's unknown whether the two are still in contact. Jasmine has completed her sentence and is living under a new name in a secret location. She's supposedly doing much better. She's become the poster child for rehabilitation in Canada. She's been working on her education and experts say that the remorse she claims to feel is genuine. It's believed that she will not reoffend, but only time will tell. Justice Scott Brooker would write in the sentence review that she had a true desire to atone and quote, what you can do is honor their memory. You have been doing exactly that and I think your parents and brother would be proud of you. Excuse me, Justice Scott Brooker? Her parents and brother would be proud of her? Personally, I think that's a jab and more than a touch insensitive. She killed those people. Those were her victims. I promise they would not be proud of her feeling regret about something she should not have done to them. Like, no, 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 no. Leave the victims out of this. Shame on you, judge. Shame on you. I'm judging a judge right now. As long as Jasmine behaves, she will have her record completely sealed by 2022. Her crimes will really only be public knowledge because of the true crime buffs, the newspapers that were already released, as well as the people that were directly affected by this, the friends and the family that are still hurting so much because she decided she wanted to kill her family. But despite that, her name will be changed and her face will have aged and matured. She will be a completely different woman from the child that commit these heinous murders. A neighbor would remember Mark and Deborah as phenomenal parents. He was quoted in saying they were the happy family we all wished we had. Deborah was the cement who built a pleasant, happy home and Mark's only plan in life was to do right by his family. The neighbor lived vicariously through these parents and really admired their devotion to their family. The couple had met in a drug recovery program after a long struggle of getting sober from hard drug addiction and were sober for 15 years before their death. 
So yes, they were sober through Jasmine's life and drugs were not part of her upbringing. The couple were described as being as in love the day they died as the day they first fell in love with each other. A friend would say they had eyes and electricity that young couples only hope to have, a love that never went away. I'm going to read the eulogy that was made public and written by the family's friend only known publicly as Diane. I find it beautiful and I think it encompasses the family very well, as far as I can personally know. Deborah did not seek to remain in the problems of life, but always chose to live in the solution of what life presented her with. Deborah was always open to seeking what her creator's will was for her and her family. She cared for her family, especially her children, in a balanced way. She nurtured them emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally. And she was deeply proud of Mark for all of his accomplishments. Mark was the provider for the family and was loved by everyone around him. He is remembered as a quiet, prudent, and reserved man that was perfectly content to let Deborah be in the spotlight. He would sit back and watch her go about with a certain gleam in his eye, a smile of gratitude and appreciation for his Deborah. Mark absolutely adored Deborah as she did him. He trusted Deborah explicitly and granted her trust to bring out the best in him. He possessed a whole lot of integrity. He was an honest man, sincere, tolerant, humble, generous, kind, and soft with words, believed in harmony, and the most important thing was his family. He also excelled in his career and took much pride in doing his job well. Jacob was a beautiful young soul, full of energy and with a heart of gold. He was a polite eight-year-old who had learned from his parents to give the biggest, warmest hugs. Jacob had learned many spiritual principles from his parents. He showed great character in his admiration for his favorite hockey player, Tiger Williams. He has such a boyish innocence and is cheering for two different hockey teams. Jacob was full of zest, a boy's boy, always active whether it be playing baseball and catch with his friends, skateboarding, or simply being a Jedi Knight. Mark, Deborah, and Jacob, we will truly miss you, but we know that you are there with us to guide our human journey. We love you always and we'll miss you. I really found this eulogy just beautiful and I love how it encompassed the love that the three of them had for each other and it really just made all of them be their own separate person instead of lumping them all together in one funeral because it's all so difficult to deal with a triple funeral. I can't even imagine how difficult that would be on someone. It was such a beautiful eulogy and Diane, I'm sure you will never hear me say this, but thank you for making it public so that I could honor this family the way the best way that I possibly could. This was a family that was pretty average, if not more than average. They were doing their damn best. Mark and Deborah had overcome their demons and were making a life for themselves. Jacob was an innocent little boy who tried to protect himself with his lightsaber and tried to look to his big sister for comfort. A little boy who was betrayed by the one girl he should have been able to turn to in one of his darkest moments. I don't even know how to approach what could possibly be learned from this one. Mark and Deborah did what they could with Jasmine. They let her have her freedoms. They allowed her to go on the websites she chose to go on and she was allowed to go on the computer in the first place. They only took the computer away when they saw those concerning messages from Jeremy. They let her go to concerts and when there was issues, they made her go with a chaperone. So they were still letting her go. She just had to have her parents with her and that's pretty fair for a 12 year old kid. 
She was allowed to wear dark makeup and she was allowed to wear goth clothes and express her style the way that she wanted. She had her freedoms. The only problem was that Jasmine had met Jeremy and somehow in her mind she was able to be convinced this was the only way that the two of them could be together. She convinced herself that Jeremy was her soulmate and the one she was meant to be with and she had to be with him. This was the only one she was going to be with. And now she thought that they had a perfect plan and there was nothing else that they could do. There was no other way for her to get away from her parents to be with him. But the question I am now going to dare to pose is, was she manipulated like this? Hear me out. Witnesses said she'd been seen laughing over the newspapers covering the murders. She and Jeremy had been bragging about it, like she'd been glued to his side when he'd been saying he'd gutted her father like a fish. She seemed pretty proud of these facts. She'd been the one to come up with the plan and messaged him first. Was Jeremy the teacher or the catalyst? Did he show her the dark side of life and she just wanted to impress him and these were actually just jokes and not meant to be taken seriously? Or did she already have these dark fantasies and she just learned more and more about them and decided to enact them? Maybe she just had someone now who was willing to help her do these things that she'd always just secretly wanted to do. But I'm just a voice on the internet. I'm not an expert. I have no knowledge in this other than what I've learned through my own true crime research and doing this podcast. Experts in the field, like actual experts in the field, seem to think that she is rehabilitated. One of the officers that was actually first on scene the morning the family was discovered wrestles with Jasmine's release every day. Some days he thinks she deserves more. Some days he just feels sorry for her and thinks she got exactly what she deserves. He says he won't read the book that came out about the crimes, and it's called Runaway Devil, How Forbidden Love Drove a 12-Year-Old to Murder Her Family. The title is based off of one of the usernames that she used on the websites that they frequented, but personally I'm not going to buy it because I don't want to risk giving her money even though it was written by a journalist. I don't, I couldn't find anything about whether she's connected to it, and I don't want to risk it. Not my thing. I don't give money to criminals. But back to this officer who brought this book up. This case plagues his mind every day. He tries not to dwell on it, but it's really hard not to. The images are stuck in his mind. He especially struggles with the image of Jacob lying dead in his bed and blood just covering all of his stuffed animals and his toy lightsaber beside him. Like I said before, Medicine Hat at the time only had 60,000 people. It's a small town. I can only imagine the shockwaves that were felt through the community after this crime came to light. I hope everyone in connection has found peace, be it the friends, family, first responders, or anyone involved in this horrendous crime. I hope that the victims who suffered through this have found peace in any way that they possibly could. If you or anyone else are suffering from violence, please reach out for help at your local helplines. You can find your province-specific ones at www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. It's an awesome directory listed by province. You just got to scroll through, find your province, scroll through that list, find the helpline that best suits your needs based on the abuse you're suffering, and it'll take you straight there. So again, www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis 
hotlines forward slash. If you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or need someone to talk to about anything mental health related, you can dial 833-456-4566 for the Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. They're open 24-7, 365 a year, and they are available in both English and French. Again, that's 833-456-4566. For my American listeners, your helpline is 1-800-273-8255. They're also open 24-7, 365 a year, and while I cannot guarantee that they will speak to you in French, they are in English, and they will talk to you about anything mental health related. So again, that's 1-800-273-8255. But if you feel that it is more severe, please dial 911 or visit your local emergency room. You are worthy of all of the help that you can possibly get. You deserve all of the help that you may not even feel that you deserve. You guys can find me on YouTube as well as wherever you find your podcasts, all at Whispers in the Trees. I'm also going to be starting an Instagram, which will be at Whispers in the Trees podcast as well as a Reddit, which will just be Whispers Podcast. Thank you guys for your continued support and just for listening. You guys are all amazing and I love each and every one of you. Thank you again. Please stay safe out there.